I am Gautam Kumra, Chairman of McKinsey Asia, and you are listening to the Future of Asia podcast series. The Asian century has begun. The region is now the world's largest economy. As Asia's economies evolve further, the region has the potential to fuel and shape the next normal. In each episode, we are going to feature conversations with leaders from across the region to discuss what Asia's rise means for businesses across the globe. Join us. Hello and welcome to a new episode of the McKinsey Future of Asia podcast. I am DY Lin, a senior partner at McKinsey and Company, and I'm your host for today. In this episode, we will be talking about the big trends affecting the future of work and how companies can respond to these latest developments. I am excited to be joined by two distinguished guests, Ahmed Bazhari, President of Microsoft Asia, as well as Paul Marriott, President of SAP Asia-Pacific Japan. It's great to have the both of you with us today. Before we delve into the topic, could the both of you just quickly introduce yourselves to our listeners? Hi, my name is Ahmed Mazari. I'm the President of Microsoft Asia. The diverse organization that we call Asia is actually ANZ, Greater China, India, Korea, Japan, Southeast Asia. And, you know, gladly, probably the most vibrant and diverse region of the world. So we're proud that we work in, and are based out of Asia. And our success is really dependent on our ability to advance, progress, and sustainably create more inclusive growth. Passionate about creating a transformation with customers and accelerating innovation, what we call Born in Asia. It's really a shift from solutions or products simply being made in Asia to being born in Asia, where this region is no longer seen as the factory of the world, but a place where ideas and innovations originate. Significant focus on the upcoming digital native generations, consumers and future leaders who are mobile first and have grown up online. And it will be the key to talent and the future of work. Paul Marriott, I'm the president of SAP Asia-Pacific Japan, a similar geographic scope to uh, Ahmed, except I'm not responsible for China. That's separate in SAP as a business that reports to our board. And 25 years in the region, I have a very long heritage working, living in Asia and echo the comments made by Ahmed. It's an incredible region. I think we, uh, unfortunately, we're the biggest polluter in the world because of some of that um, factory and manufacturing, but that presents us with an, a really interesting opportunity to solve for some of the biggest climate change challenges with great people and technology. I think also on the people supply chain for the long term, for the globe, 70% of the world's STEM talent is coming out of Asia. So there's a huge opportunity for us to help the world build more capability and capacity into the tech sector and proliferate that across regions. And it is the hotbed of innovation, right? So, you know, Asia is the center of innovation for the rest of the world. And uh, the closer that software companies like Microsoft and SAP can get to our customers in this part of the world, I think the greater impact we can have on sustainability, but also digital transformation, and obviously building that future supply chain of talent, just given the significant amount of STEM students coming out of universities here. So great to be here and looking forward to the conversation. Thank you both for that introduction. Let's dive straight in. I think even before COVID hit us in early 2020, we were already experiencing a shift in the way we worked. But now that so much has changed in the last couple of years, what are some of the key trends defining the future of work in Asia today? 
Look, it's been a great pleasure actually partnering with SAP, and we've done a bunch of transformational work over the last several years. As Paul rightly pointed out, but at the core of transformation is people and talent. And that's the STEM talent. 70% of STEM talent, as Paul rightly pointed out, sits in Asia. But that's the market that has been the most severely impacted. Labor shifts have happened. People have had to remain either in their homes for long or in cities that they didn't belong to or in countries they didn't belong to. So the, the collective experience of the last two years has left a lasting imprint fundamentally reshaping the way people think about work, think about life, where they live. And that's the origin of really the hybrid work. But the biggest insight we have today is that employees are rethinking the worth it question. I mean, in a sense, what do people want from work and what are they willing to give in return? So bearing in mind, we see three key trends that I thought it may be worthwhile for us to touch on and would love to get you know, Paul's inputs as well. But based on our research, I'll share with you some annual work trend index data that we conducted. So we surveyed 31,000 full-time employed and self-employed workers across 31 markets globally, 14 in Asia in early 2022. And the three broad trends, as I pointed out, first, leaders need to be flexible and embrace hybrid work, and there's no going back. And I'm in Japan, as we were chatting in a pre-session, and yesterday, we opened the Japan office fully. People are looking for flexible options. 70% of the workers want flexible remote options to continue. But equally, about two-thirds are craving for in-person time with teams, which is why you have people who wanted to really come and be part of the work, uh, part of the lunch session. But equally, they wanted to be where they could participate online. So decision makers, we need to reconsider designing our physical spaces. And these spaces will be hybrid environments like hot desks, meeting pods, rooms to cater to virtual meetings, as well as having the right collaboration tools. If done right, flexible work arrangements could be a very powerful tool for inclusion and for companies to be able to benefit from a more diverse talent pool. At Microsoft Asia, we believe in what we call free-dimensional work, where we empower our colleagues with the flexibility to work from anywhere, but at the same time benefit from in-person human connections we've all been missing. We call it that because work is no longer just two-dimensional interactions between screen or only three-dimensional in person, but it's free-dimensional, synchronous, asynchronous, in-person, or remote. Second, Productivity needs to be redefined and measured more accurately. There's a disconnect between employees and employers on how they perceive productivity. Four out of five Asian workers, so 80% say that they're as productive or even more productive at home. But then two-thirds of leaders say that productivity has been negatively impacted. This fear stems from the reasons such as caregiving required at home or missing the sense of community or even some leaders struggling with a dependency on technology and also a tendency sometimes to be micromanagers. To allay these fears, business leaders need to openly communicate with their employees and relook at concrete measures of productivity. And productivity is really critical as the world needs to progress 
towards more inclusive growth. Third, businesses in Asia need to embrace an inclusive culture so employees feel supported. Relationships have suffered in the pandemic. More than half of hybrid workers, 57% in APAC, feel lonelier at work, and 68% say they have fewer work friendships since the pandemic. So business leaders ought to create a working environment and employee experience where employees feel connected to one another and the business purpose, wherever they are based, brings them together effectively as a team. Maybe I build on that, particularly like the productivity consideration that Ahmed talks about, because if you think pre-pandemic, it's interesting also in the tech sector, we were not so sophisticated in how we would work in a hybrid way. It was a forcing factor. We suddenly all went remote. And now we've found this nice balance, or we continue to find this nice balance between physical and remote and hybrid. I think the key thing is, as Ahmed describes in terms of some of those data points and characteristics is it is now the default working model, right? Companies want to provide flexibility for their workforce to work how they want and to deliver to an outcome, which I think links to the productivity. It's often about how do you help the workforce find that balance in the hybrid model so they maximize personal and professional life, but also teams and then teams at scale in, in large organizations like SAP and Microsoft, you know, continue to deliver to the bigger outcomes. So going forward, this, this is going to be the way when we talk to our employees, 80% of our employees want a hybrid model. We're in single digits that want to be 100% remote as well. So what's interesting is that very few employees want to be 100% remote. Everybody, the vast majority, want hybrid. What gets interesting is understanding the different demographics in your organization. Many demographics, it could be generational, it could be gender, it could be cultural in terms of nationality, location, what those preferences are. And I think empowering an organization and the actual employees and the talent in your organization to through a trust-based model where they decide and define how they work is crucially important. I say that because we see so much diversity in terms of those different demographics. Younger people are tending to want to be in the office actually more than perhaps more tenured employees. Of course, people in locations like perhaps India, where the travel time to the office is significant, may have a greater preference, no surprise, to be working more regularly remotely. So it's absolutely hybrid all the way. It's about empowering the employees to find what works best for them. But then at an organizational level, making sure from a productivity perspective, you still deliver to those organizational outcomes. And I, I won't deny, and I'm sure Ahmed won't as well, finding that balance is difficult. We definitely get a lot of data that also suggests that in a hybrid model, finding that balance and the disconnect between professional and personal is, is still a challenge. But what I would say, interestingly, in the last recent months, traveling again, is I actually think hybrid helps you get the balance. When you're 100% remote, certainly the, the digital fatigue sets in in a really big way. And I think a lot of the data points that Ahmed called out in terms of some of those social challenges for individuals become very, very apparent and accentuated. What's great about hybrid is, is you get the best of both worlds, right? So you can work remotely if the type of work you're doing is maximized through a remote model, but equally when you want to come together and have more interaction, which also creates social opportunity, which is important in the workplace and in life in general, 
you get this brilliant balance that I think is helping people find their feet again in this new model. So we're, we're not there yet, and we're still refining and learning as we go and pulsing and communicating with employees at scale is crucially important. And there's a lot of technologies out there that enable that, right? So that you can understand where your organization is, you know, across Asia or globally. And then you constantly are course correcting, crowdsourcing feedback to then get the best possible model for your organization. What we have been talking about so far are the three key trends that are impacting your specific companies. Do you think that what you're seeing within SAP and Microsoft will extrapolate to other sectors and companies as well? I think it's an interesting question you ask. Sadly, both Paul and I probably belong to the same industry, so I think we're probably singing the same tune. But I think what I would take away from what Paul just said, and he really articulated it very well, which is finding the right balance. We actually think about hybrid as a dial. And the dials actually are different stages in different geos, in different industries, in different locations based on people's needs. And as Paul rightly pointed out, as a manager, as a leader, I am constantly seeking new inputs, finding new ways of thinking about those and reacting to those. Some days, you know, my mind tells me that we have swung too far and we are losing out on creativity. On the other day, my mind tells me that, hey, We have to, as leaders, seek these inputs, evolve, and there will come a time where it'll become a norm of the future. But for now, I would just encourage that we think about this as an evolutionary trend, which, by the way, has different meanings for different sectors. Like, think about frontline workers, right? Which is a very different example. Frontline workers in many industries had no option of hybrid I mean, the remained frontline. For a special edition of the work trend in reports specifically on frontline, we surveyed people in, in healthcare institutions, schools, construction, warehouse, and it was very revealing. Companies are now investing heavily in digital tools for frontline workers to modernize workflows, enhance job performance, and improve work performance and culture and communication. But organizations really need to bridge the tech equity gap where some people still don't have the right technology to do their jobs or to learn. And the training gap where the tech is in place, but people aren't trained on how to use it. And technology is evolving very rapidly. So this training is super crucial for hybrid work, effectiveness, and our digital economy. We've also found that hybrid work has weakened workplace culture, as I pointed out, even for frontline, with less connection between them and the leadership. So as we think about post-pandemic, there has been a shift in mindset. The frontline workers have about technology. They start to embrace it even more. Previously, many frontline workers were concerned that technology was seen as an automation tool to make their jobs obsolete. But now they're excited. You know, they want to learn. It creates new job opportunities. And therefore, there are many sectors where adoption of technology has actually streamlined existing tasks and reduced stress. Look, finally, and I'm sure Paul will have a view from a software standpoint, but also from his customers about how he's seeing the future of work. It's not really to work from home to work to work but to work in a balance such that the organizations can adapt to the changing employee expectations. 
and also adopt technology across the board to make it more effective. Whether the workforce is made up of knowledge workers, frontline workers, or, or operational workers, it's all new, it's evolving, and we're learning each day. For years, observers have talked about Asia's massive future potential. But the future arrived even faster than expected. The question is no longer how quickly Asia will rise, it is how Asia will lead. Keep listening to the Future of Asia podcast. Maybe if I add to that, I try to create a different spin on this, some of the same context that Ahmed shared. So yeah, we're in the same industry, obviously, Microsoft and SAP and, and the tech industry is has a very good level of tech readiness, right? So this forcing factor of the pandemic has allowed us to learn quickly. It was a bit of a jolt. It was a little painful, but we got there quickly. Yeah, I do think by organizational size and, and geography and location, right, there's different levels of technology readiness. The good news is the entry point for the use of tech is getting lower and lower, right? So connectivity, the pervasiveness of, of internet access, of course, and I'm talking about Asia here, where sometimes these things are assumed in, in more mature markets, but are still challenged either from a geographic accessibility or a cost perspective. But that, that's getting easier and easier for more and more and creating greater and greater inclusion. I think what I would say, though, by organization, if you look at, say, large organizations like SAP and Microsoft, but also small, right, Asia is also a mid-market you see the small companies having exactly the same challenge and potentially a little bit more pronounced because they've got a higher risk, right? They have a small number of employees that they're highly dependent on. And there's no doubt that in this model, if you don't get it right, the great resignation, right? We see it happening. You see the shift in the workforce significantly, high attrition rates. And for small organizations, we certainly see and hear that one of their greatest risks is finding the right talent, securing it, and sustaining, maintaining it. And employees, like we've been describing, right, they're now looking for this new type of modern, flexible workplace. So it's the same challenge for big organizations, but small organizations are more susceptible. But the flip side of that is small organizations can be more agile, right? If they quickly pivot, they can get there faster and course correct more quickly. We're seeing that 90% of small organizations literally are looking to drive these workforce engagement models, right, where they get maximum productivity, maximum engagement. And when you go into hybrid, I think the other thing, and Ahmed, you were alluding to inclusion, when there is a fight for talent and only a certain talent pool, one of the things that technology enables is this ability to also access new pools of talent. A great example of that is our share in Japan, Ahmed, you're there. We ran a, a social impact initiative with our contingent labor network, our business network. This is a network that for contingent labor uh, provides access to talent that come into the network and make that talent available globally. It's a global network. We use that network, for example, in Japan to tap into less privileged communities so it could be underprivileged, it could be single mothers, whereby we use the platform to engage, provide a level of digital capability and readiness, and then allow the network to be used by that community to contribute to that contingent labor network. And that's very powerful for two reasons. It's, uh, it can be life-changing for those individuals, and we're seeing fantastic adoption of that in Japan and similar projects around the region. 
but also it adds capacity, right? Where this contingent labor model, I mean, SAP, by the way, we have like 100,000 plus full-time employees, but we have another 50,000 that we leverage in the contingent labor network. And the network's all about outcomes. I have a requirement, I pass it into the network, and then I choose to select how that work is done by, by location, by price, by quality, by time to deliver, all of these different criteria. The network solves for it, and then obviously you pay for that outcome in the network. So in some ways, and that's not a new model, that existed well before the pandemic, but I think there's a lot of learnings from permanent employees, contingent labor, business networks, supply of talent globally being made available through these networks, and also using that to get greater inclusion so more people can enter the sector that previously have had a technological barrier. So there's so many really positive things in terms of what the pandemic's done and post-pandemic and, and hybrid working, not just for the existing pool of, of talent, but also new pools of talent that we're tapping into. And of course, embedding this into universities, right? So we keep talking about all the STEM graduates uh, flooding out of Asia. Just to give you a data point, if I was able to get to just 5% of uh, the STEM talent between now and say 2025, you know, over the next three years, I would certify another million consultants into the SAP ecosystem, which actually we desperately need. So relatively small investment into those universities and academic institutes with, with digital technology that connects people to SAP, what we're doing in partnership with Microsoft to drive that capacity in the marketplace to support this tremendous amount of digital transformation we're seeing and fueling from Asia that talent globally, right? Because that will be picked up around the world, not just here. So, so many different things where there's great positives that have come out of what have been a very difficult period where we were all locked down, right? I think we all have thought very differently about how we can work, how we can use technology, how we can create greater inclusion, and how we can operate globally through these networks in very different ways to how we perhaps did pre-pandemic. What I'm hearing from the both of you is that hybrid and remote working has really been key in attracting core talent to your companies. On the other end of the spectrum, some companies have been much more skeptical about the impact of hybrid work on the productivity of their employees. Why do you think that some companies have been so reticent to embrace remote working arrangements? I don't necessarily think we have all the right and wrong ways of doing this, right? So I talk to a lot of my customers that have set a policy where they're asking their employees to come in on two fixed days a week. Now, the upside of that model is that if you say hey, on a Tuesday and a Thursday or Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, you, you're sort of more office-based, Monday, Friday at home. The upside of that is, is that you drive more people into the office space where you get that collaboration, you get the, the face-to-face, you get the social interaction. So I'm not against that as an approach because it probably has a faster path to physically getting people back in the office. I think the downside of that approach, though, is that when you mandate these things and you don't empower employees and essentially you're not creating a trust-based workforce because you're telling them what to do and how to work, I honestly believe the more flexible, trust-based, empowered-based model will be what wins out on the long term in terms of how people and talent and the workforce wants to work. Everybody wants empowerment of their own life, right? So it's this pros and cons. I Obviously, at SAP, I don't mandate uh, talent to come into the office. What I do is I create impetus to come into the office because our employees are then motivated. It could be 
and also type of work. So, for example, if you're doing product design of software, it's definitely more conducive to be working in a highly collaborative office space that's been designed for collaboration and innovation to get greater productivity. Uh, strategy is another great one that Ahmed uh, would definitely be doing, like what I'm doing with my leadership team. Definitely easier to bring them physically together and you get more productivity, uh, greater cre- creativity. Now, flip side is, is I can also start at very early in the morning with New Zealand. I can work through Southeast Asia. I can work through Japan, Korea, India, right? I can cover a whole region. I can meet all my customers in a day, which is impossible to do uh, in the physical world. Right? So again, massive productivity gain working remotely based on the type of work and the type of engagement. I would say flip side again, meeting net new customers digitally is more difficult than maintaining a relationship with a customer that you've met physically. So then this brings the hybrid model back again, right? So establishing relationships, that physical connect, the more social side of the relationship, right, is crucially important as well. But the benefit of getting that right with the, the physical and in person and then, and then the remote you, you get that right and you actually get you get really, really good scale. So I think that probably the big thing we track on all of these things, whichever model you choose. So whichever model you choose, what, what's the most important takeaway? What is the wellness and business health index, if you like, of your employees? And um, we run an SAP platform called Qualtrics. I mentioned this before around employee engagement. And one of the metrics that we track is, is the business health index and it, it looks at stress levels it looks at engagement levels so whatever model you're running make sure you've got transparency on where your employees are at and then self-reflect on your model crowdsource feedback from your employees to continually refine that to obviously maximize on those measures of well-being because i think the greatest challenge we saw obviously through the pandemic was just this massive digital fatigue the loneliness, you know, pockets of employees that could go for months without interaction, massive mental health issues. And by the way, we don't just see that with with adults, right? We see it in a very significant way with a generation of children, right, that have witnessed firsthand the difficulties of, of working remotely for things like schoolwork. I, I think we've still got the the challenges of that demographic ahead of us that we also need to solve for. But Look, the more you can get the visibility and the transparency around these things, you can at least then see what's going on. And then you can continually course correct the hybrid model to work what is ever best for you and your organization. Yeah, Nepal, I think your point on people and talent is a really good one. We've often used the term, the great reshuffle, which is a lift off the great resignation, actually. And one of the things that we are observing more and more is that you know, there's a huge supply demand issue and the talent that you you just, uh, you know, alluded to. Look, I, I, sometimes people were asked, is there a case for a hybrid work environment? I think it's a competitive advantage if you get it right. And our surveys suggest that there's about 700 million jobs that will get created in tech until the end of the decade, which is essentially the digitization of the global economy. And participation of workforce will become one of the most important criteria between success and failure. So as I sit in Japan, and what a great example that you just shared, this is a declining workforce. So the only way for us to continue to grow and create impact, uh, you know, as uh, Microsoft or as SAP, is to find new pockets of talent that we've not traditionally accessed. And hybrid is, is a great example 
of that, and which is why at Microsoft Asia, our slogan of works for me and freedom, three-dimensional work is actually finding a lot of resonance. I mean, look, if I don't get to work every day. There are days when I just decide that, okay, today I'm going to work from home and uh, it's more effective. It also helps me balance, like you said, about time zones, about not losing time on commute, etc. But equally, I'm energized when I'm with people. <laughs> I'm energized when I see people around me. And, and yesterday at lunch, we had like 198 people in the cafeteria. And this, there was just so much of energy. But as I think about the opportunity, this is the fine balance of what therefore we call the dial. There are certain jobs where the dial will be, hey, it's probably more valuable for us to come together in a group, sit down for four hours and then disperse. And there will be some other groups where the dial could be more on the you know, home side. So yeah, I think we'll all learn. I think we should just keep an open mind, growth mindset, learn, evolve, and continue to find new ways for people to participate in the workforce because that's the only way for progress that we're so uh, desirous of. Just to add as well, because... I think I made you said you're open this new office right in, in Tokyo and uh, we're doing the same. We're just opening our new office also in Tokyo in, in a few months from now, but we've opened in Singapore here, also Sydney, and we're renovating many of the offices around the region. And I guess the question of, you know, will people come back to the office? Well, you know, you wouldn't invest in, in that level of real estate renovation if we were not expecting to get this hybrid model fully optimized for productivity. So one of the things I think is important for organizations to consider is that workspace. Employees want a really vibrant, creative, collaborative, innovative, fun place to work. You see a lot of organizations now maybe slightly downsizing physical capacity, but then uh, still maintaining the same level of investment in terms of having higher quality workspace, right, to then drive that engagement in the office. So I think this office infrastructure is really important and, and hence why you're seeing a lot of uh, organizations investing it, I, even to the point where we've moved offices to minimize commute times, right? So that we're also considering commute times for people to make it easier for them to come into the office when they come into the office. So yeah, lots of perspectives, I guess, on, on this topic, but I think that is an important one. The office is not going anywhere, but the office is getting a major, major upgrade to be a, a highly collaborative, engaging workplace. Again, that's what um, particularly the gig economy and, and the earlier talents, right, that they expect by default, right? That's table stakes, I think, going into the future. Let me bring this all together in one overarching question, which is, what advice would you give a business leader who is keen to translate these trends into tangible steps or solutions? What are one or two things you would want them to take away from this episode? That's a very, very hard question because, frankly, we're learning so much each day. And I think what Paul and I kept saying, you know, flexibility, openness, and agility, both in, in how you act and behave. But for me, like, you know, open communication and empathy probably is just foundational of positive culture. I see that as part of our Microsoft framework of model coach and care. To shape a successful future of work strategy, we just must ensure that we empathize with the needs of the workforce and then communicate clearly. Because a lack of clear direction from the top creates uncertainty. Employees are, are still wondering where they are. They seem disconnected from the management. 
So I, I'd say empathy and honest communication is probably the two things that I would say are really top of mind. And finally, I would definitely confess as a leader that I'm very open to being vulnerable on this and saying, look, I don't know stuff. Like people will ask me, how do you act on this? Or how do you behave in this? Or, you know, what's your reaction when someone says, I'm not coming to work? I'm learning. I'm learning myself how to deal with it. And it will be an evolution. But finally, we'll be tested on what I call the worth it equation. (laughs) Employees have more choices than ever before. And they will value where they feel that they have the right balance between their ability to either work at home, in a different location, at customers, at partner locations. And I'm really looking forward to making three-dimensional work real. But equally, I think about human connections as really fundamental to our evolution. If I was to try and boil it down into three things, I think that the Definitely the future is all about flexibility. SAP, we call it SAP Pledge to Flex. So I think it's really important that you define a framework and create a brand around it, right? So if you don't have that already, you need to create that and you need to stick to that and then start to evolve that model. SAP Pledge to Flex is is what we call it. And, you know, we continue to refine and sustain that. I think then, secondly, it's about, I'm going to come back to productivity. So. At the end of the day, businesses are becoming absolutely more sustainable, but really businesses fundamentally are about their productivity. SAP, we're a business process company for 50 years, right? We're all about creating great and great productivity. But uh, productivity in this context is that hybrid working model. So think about your organization, the teams, the roles, responsibilities, and the type of work. The third, I think, has to be tech, right? I mean, You can do some amazing things with technology in this space, right? You're constantly listening to your organization. And then, as Ahmed said, it's about communication with empathy. So when you get the feedback, play it back, recognize where the gaps are, be clear about action plans you're putting in place, and show how you've closed the gap based on that feedback. So have a high-level brand, pledge to flex, look at the productivity, the types of work, and start to create a playbook around people that people can follow and use to get that rhythm of the business and and to drive productivity in the best possible way, but with the right balance. And then you've got to use tech. You've got to use tech. I mean, metaverse is coming and all of these things. It's just going to get more and more sophisticated in the way that we can work physically and virtually. Exciting and uh, for Ahmed and I, a little bit older, daunting, that tech is going to be at the foundation of everything you do in this model, you know, over the next five to 10 years. Thank you both for your time today. We have come to the end of this episode of the McKinsey Future of Asia podcast. If you enjoyed it, please keep a lookout for more to come. And if this topic of the future of work interested you and you would like to read our reports on it, please go to mckinsey.com front slash future of Asia for more. You have been listening to the Future of Asia podcast by McKinsey and Company. To learn more about McKinsey, our people, our latest thinking, visit us at mckinsey.com slash futureofasia or find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. <laughs>